Anna. And I'm Anton. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Scalpel. In this episode, we will be interviewing Dr. Eric Levi, a triple fellowship trained ENT surgeon. Thanks for coming, Dr. Levi. Thanks for having me, Anna and Anton. Maybe we could start by hearing a little bit about yourself, your medical training and your background. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So yes, you're right. I'm an ENT surgeon, otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon is what APRA titles me. Um, and I'm from Narum, Melbourne, uh, the land of the Wurundjeri people. Um, so I trained here in Melbourne through medical school. And then I did all of my training uh, through the Australian Society of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery in various different hospitals here in Melbourne. Uh, ENT is a state-based training program, not a hospital-based. So we get rotated around several different hospitals. And then I did this crazy thing. We just had, took a three-year fellowship, one year in Canada, one year in beautiful Brisbane, Queensland, and also another year in Auckland, New Zealand. So I had a good time being away before I came back. And right now I am uh, focusing on um, head and neck surgery in both the pediatric and adult world. So I work at the Royal Children's Hospital Melbourne and also at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and privately as well. Enough to keep me busy. Sure sounds like it. Um, what would an average day look like for you? Um, well, podcast is definitely not an average day, so this is fun. Um, so it's obviously a mix of, uh, as you know, clinics and also operating. So in ENT, we probably have about, you know, what I call the average is about three clinics equals one operating theater. Um, and so on a typical day, um, I would, or a typical week, for example, I spend a couple of days at the children's, a day at St. Vincent's and a couple of days in the private uh, with a mix of probably about four operating sessions to three to four operating sessions to about, you know, four to six uh, consulting sessions. And of course, I'm on call for each of the hospitals at any one time, on call for the private patients as well. So a bit of a juggle with everything else that's going on. And now in the world of the pandemic, of course, Zoom meeting at every minute of the day now. (laughs) Zoom at six, Zoom at seven, Zoom at midday, Zoom at seven in the evening, you know, just juggling. Yeah, so you have done some training in pediatric and adult ENT. How does the day-to-day differ between the two? Yeah, Um, so what's fascinating is this. So um, for most of our surgical specialties, and I know I'm speaking to a group of medical students and potentially some who are interested in surgery, um, you could do a pediatric surgery training program, and that's fully pediatrics. Um, you look after, you know, pediatric conditions between, you know, neonatal age group and also uh, up to about the age of 18, depending on your pediatric hospitals. Okay. But for other, for other specialties like cardiothoracics, orthopedics, um, ENT, plastics, most of us are adult trained. And during our training, we spend a little bit of time in pediatric hospitals as part of our requirement. And if we wanted to do more pediatrics, then we take on subspecialty training in pediatric um, in a particular subspecialty. So I did, for example, two additional years of subspecialty fellowship training specifically in pediatric ENT on top of my adult head and neck cancer reconstructive uh, fellowship. Okay. 
So you mentioned you've done some subspecialty training in peds, and then yep. you've also done those two extra fellowships. Yes. What what motivated taking those three years off and traveling the world, accruing <laughs> those extra skills? I think if I go back a step, if we ask ourselves, you know, when I was a medical student, what did I want to do? Or well, before I went into medicine, I, I actually did psychology. So I thought okay. I was going to do medicine, and then I was going to end up doing something like psychiatry. Then ED really interested me. Then I thought I was going to do an ED, uh, you know, training. And then somehow pediatric really, you know, uh, was something that I enjoyed maybe because of the people that I met as I was in medic uh, during medical school training. Um, then I took about three to five years before fully deciding that, you know, surgery was what I wanted to do. Um, once I chose the path of surgery, um, choosing the right specialty was the next question. And this is the part that I always want to say to a lot of uh, a lot of students and trainees. Once you have chosen down the path of surgery, that question about which specialty that you want to do comes secondary because every specialty in surgery, or I should say every specialty in medicine is actually fascinating. It's growing. There's just no end to the knowledge acquisition. So every specialty in medicine and surgery is noble. It's great. It's awesome. Finding one that suits you and your personality and your lifestyle uh, can be quite challenging at times and it takes time. So it, it's okay to take time. That additional year of exploring a particular specialty is an investment, uh, you know, to actually find out. You know, for example, I wanted to do a particular specialty which should remain unnamed. Uh, I did that specialty for about a year as a registrar and a graduation. I thought, hmm, this is actually not what I want, you know. And then I did uh, half a year in ENT. Just it wasn't actually even in my uh, radar. I did oh, okay. ENT for half a year and as a resident. And man, I loved it. I loved the 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 specialty. I loved the people. That's the other big thing as well. I always say you're not only choosing the specialty, you're choosing the people that you're going to be working with for the rest of your life. So you need to actually love your surgical community. Uh, so when I was in my residency and internship, I did attend trauma conferences, plastics conferences, urology conferences, just to get a feel of the community and the, uh, I suppose, the problems or the challenges or the exciting stuff that they're dealing with. And Ultimately, I, I, I gave ENT a shot and on my third go, I got on um, and I'm very happy with that. So from that point of view, that's, um, that's how I got to ENT. And, and so then, with you, you're saying each yes. specialty has a certain yes. type of, of community. What was yes. the ENT community like for you and what drew you to that? Yeah, what I felt was like we were the, the ENT community is 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 one whereby you know there's there's a peculiarity of it all because nobody nobody knows what we do in ENT uh, until unless you've done an ENT rotation, uh, you've never heard of the word stapedectomy or esthesioneuroblastoma or you know uh, uh, exit procedure you know extra uterine intrapartum therapy you know all of these little uh, peculiar little things everyone just thinks of tonsils and grommets but man there's so much in that. Um, so, so the ENT surgeons are, as a group of people, we're just a little bit more laid back. I think we're not really uh, much in the way of trying to, uh, uh, what's the word, um, um, one-appmanship one over each other. Uh, there's just a little bit of collaboration. And maybe it's just the groups of people that are fallen into uh, that, that, that I just like. I just gel. The communication and the conversation in the community just gel with me. But that, that's just me. But I'm sure um, you will find that. That in 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 the similar thing in plastics, orthopedic, cardiothoracic, urology, pediatrics, whatever uh, that that suits your personality and characters in 
know, uh, you, you probably find that, you know, and you will gel. Um, I don't think anyone has left a specialty because they didn't like the people, but I think people will choose a particular specialty because they do because like the people. Yeah. That's right. And it's not just the work. And ultimately, let's be honest, most of the work that we are going to do for the rest, the next 30, 40 years of our life is going to be reasonably routine. What I mean by that is in every specialty, there's a routine back of conditions and procedures and you just got to live with it the neurologists have to deal with migraine all the time the uh, pediatricians have to deal with behavioral disorders all the time you know what does your particular specialty deal with routinely and you just got to live with it and enjoy it it's the community and the um, extra special conditions that's the one that 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 makes a unique uh, specialty um, to you you know so what works for you uh, might be different from what works for me and I've, I've enjoyed my community and my specialty very very much that's that's awesome. Thank you very much for that. So the um, you were just about to talk about your fellowship specifically yes. and how those um, why you chose to do all three as opposed yeah. to just one. Can you yeah. tell us a bit about that as well? So um, as I was going through my uh, specialty training, within about so it's a five year program for most surgical specialties. So within about the third year, you would probably want to know what's your subspecialty areas of, of of concern. And just let me be, let me be clear here as well: is you do not have to specifically choose a particular specialty because sometimes being that true generalist, Australia still needs that. You still need to be a rural generalist. There's still a huge amount of unmet needs in the rural community. So you don't have to be an ivory tower uh, left toe surgeon or right ear <laughs> surgeon. You, you, you can be a general uh, uh, a generalist in your specialty and you will do well. Okay. Um, so for me, though, I really wanted to have an extra additional training just because there was a few areas in ENT that I felt was a little bit unmet here in Melbourne. And at that time, it was in the area of pediatric and in particular pediatric head and neck. Uh, dealing with tumors of, of the head and neck in the, in the young child. Um, and so I was essentially, and that was when I was trying to marry what I love and what the community needed. Uh, and I just happened to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time with the right people that I landed some of this fellowship. So about the third year of my training, I applied for a Canadian fellowship that was in head and neck surgery. So I clinched that one. Um, and during the fifth year of my training and my first year in that fellowship, um, I decided you know, that I was going to explore other things. So I already got a second fellowship as a, uh, in, in Montreal. That didn't work out because the funding fell off. And so I sought out uh, Australian and New Zealand fellowships. And I think I was just lucky enough uh, to, uh, to land some of these great fellowships in Brisbane and also in Auckland. Um, and, and again, people ask, why do you do three? Well, because I wanted to do four and my wife was going <laughs> to, I did a fourth. Um, it's a learning experience. It's, you know, like when you see how things are done in other places and how medicine, medical culture uh, look like in other places, it's just such a fascinating thing. You know, there are so many differences, but there are also so many similarities. Uh, we might touch about the stresses a bit later, but from an actual medical point of view or surgical point of view, just how we do things differently gives you a different perspective on the fact that, oh, Brisbane has been doing it this way for all this while, but Melbourne has been doing it differently, but we seem to get the same results. <laughs> so what's the difference, you know? Uh, things like that. So how, that, that's how I landed those three fellowships. It really mostly because I, I loved it so much and I wanted to fill uh, an unmet kind of need. Um, the other thing as well, I always say to, to a lot of people, just remember that when you choose some of these specialties, um, 
uh, particularly during the uh, fellowship, um, it's like a honeymoon. Uh, you're going to do things that you really, really love without all the responsibilities of being a consultant in a public hospital or a consultant in a private practice. So fellowship years to me was a real honeymoon and probably the best years of my life. Now I come back to Melbourne and I'm, you know, kind of I'm tied to responsibilities in a public hospital, uh, responsibilities in the private as well. So enjoy it while you can. Of course, don't do 10 fellowships, probably <laughs> two uh, or it's more than enough. Three was a bit special. Uh, yeah, but choose your own path. You know, I'm sure you'll, you'll find one that you like. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that and especially about the different practices that occur overseas. We're actually just speaking uh, with our last podcast guest, Dr. Chow, and she said that um, she went to Korea and looking at robotic surgery over there and they would ask her, you know, why do you do it this way? Oh, this is just how we've always been taught. And it was interesting seeing the differences. Was there like any specific examples you could pull up for us about things that were different or just like fascinated you about like the Canadian method or the New Zealand method? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, in Canada, I still remember very clearly. So we did a lot of parotid cancer, parotid tumor, head and neck cancer. Australia, obviously, particularly uh, in Queensland, we're like the world capital city for melanoma, squamous cell carcinoma, a lot of head and neck cancer. So we usually do a lot of parotid surgery. And in Canada, in, in Australia, I mean, we deal with melanoma and SCCs all the time. So we do a lot of major parotid surgery, major reconstruction. And we would actually, uh, um, you know, routinely do a lot of this. In Canada, for example, they don't do as many head and neck cancer or melanoma or parotid disease as, as we do, because I was far on the eastern side of Canada in Halifax, Nova Scotia. It was very cold. It was a, um, it was a, a you know, kind of a fishing, a lobster fishing uh, area, really, really down to earth people. I love it. Um, but for example, there was one time when we were doing a parotid and they were meticulously dissecting the greater auricular nerve. And I said, oh, this is just a sensory nerve. We in Australia, we would just walk through it because it just, you know, saves us a lot more time. And they said, oh, no, we can't do that. In, 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 in Canada, if you don't preserve the sensory nerve to the earlobe, um, they will lose their earlobe because Canadian winter is so cold. Wow. Uh, you know, and, and, and you don't want to get that kind of loss of sensation and, and all that. So that was a, a unique little thing, for example. Wow. But, but then how that taught me was like actually spending an extra 5-10 minutes managing the uh, greater auricular nerve is a good quality of life. You know, we talk about cancer, about you know, uh, survival rate. But now we should be moving from not just survival, but also quality of life post mm. cancer and chemo and radiation. So just simple little things like that. Of course, in Brisbane and Auckland has slightly different approaches to different things. And again, in a very similar way, that just makes you a better surgeon. Once you see what is done in other countries, other hospitals, it just makes you a better surgeon. You know? I can only imagine... I'd like to move a little bit on to maybe something a bit more personal for you. Um, obviously, we've spoken about how you've done these fellowships and I can't even imagine how stressful that might have been. Did you did you face a lot of stresses in that process? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when... Um I mean, both from a professional point of view. So I guess professionally, you know, when you're starting off, you, you know what it's like starting off in a new hospital, in a new environment, it, it is stressful. But 
that kind of professional stress probably happens in the first, you know, kind of week or month. And then you get used to the system and you you get comfortable with it. Um, there's also the personal or family stress. Moving, uh, I have, uh, you know, we move. My wife is an infectious diseases physician and uh, we have three kids. And I still remember when we flew to Canada, we left Melbourne at four in the morning, kind of thing, packed up my three kids. My eldest at that time was seven and he was... He was, he was kind of vomiting all through because I felt that he was sensing our fear. He, we knew that this was a major move. Uh, we had a two-monther in our, in our lap and then a seven-year-old. And so um, it was quite a stressful thing. And I still remember uh, going into the toilet in the airplane and just thinking, geez, what have I done with my family here? I've just moved them halfway around the world, exactly 12 hours behind Melbourne, Australia, uh, to a country with no, we have no friends, no connection, no nothing. And it was just scary. It was, I mean, stressful, absolutely. And then not only we did we do that once, we did that three times, you know, uh, and packed up all our bags and we did it all over again and we moved. But, you know, the fascinating thing is sometimes this, you know, the detours in life is exactly where you're meant to be. When we were in Halifax, we had five Aussie fellows in the same hospital at the same time. So it was, we didn't know we were coming. That's right. We didn't know we were coming. We just found out that we, now we are friends. We see each other, uh, you know, and, uh, and so, so it was a great community in the end. Um, But anyway, but to come back to that question, Anna, um, yes, absolutely. It was stressful, both from a, from a a work professional point of view with the changes in uh, environment, but also with, with life. Um, and these were the times when, uh, you know, um, stress, uh, burnout, uh, you know, mental health issues, uh, all of that comes about as well. And I mean, right now we're living through a pandemic time mm-hmm. period. So it's, you know, we're not moving, but yet our lives have changed significantly. So absolutely. I think, I think that kind of um, stress is something that we will all experience or we are all experiencing right now as medical students, residents, registrars, and, and clinicians. You know, are there any specific COVID-related stresses that you've noticed in the workplace that may contribute yeah. to burnout? Um, absolutely. I think in the last three years, um, I must admit that, I must say that, that how we all experience COVID is very, very unique to the current location that we feel, right? So how you in Brisbane and uh, I in Melbourne and, and, you know, when people go through it in Perth or in Auckland and other places, it's all quite personal. And it's also dependent on, on, on your immediate team. So uh, in the last three years, nothing new here. I'm sure people have mentioned it before and I'm sure you've gone through it. All of the pivoting, all of the changes, all of the constant readjustments, all of the surgical cancellation, patient cancellation, they just eats into our psyche as a healthcare community. All of the, uh, you know, on one hand, you're trying to kind of do your best at work. On another hand, you are being spat on by the community to say masks are useless and vaccines are killing people and all that stuff. So there is that dual confusion between what's really going on where some people think this is all nothing and other people think this is the end of the world. And we're living somewhere in the middle of that. And of course, um, you know, week after week, there's always something different. And that just messes up with our routine. 
we as human beings, we love a bit of routine. We love some challenge, but not too much. We love a bit of routine. But the last three years during the pandemic has changed and challenged all of us routine. And I think that's a real issue, even from a personal point of view. So I think we're putting in a mix back here. A lot of things are going on. Stress. Stress is just a day-to-day stress that we face. Cancellations, changes in, 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 in scheduling. That is daily stress. And we just need to be able to manage that. There's the compassion fatigue where we're always caring for people, caring for people, caring for people who are not even following regulations or rules. That's a bit of a compassion fatigue for us. We've got to reach out to them, even though they know the better thing to do or the right thing to do, but they don't do it. That's part of being a clinician, understanding that not everyone's going to follow health advice. Not everyone's going to follow the right thing. And you've got to just still extend compassion to them. Then there's the moral fatigue, right? You know, you want to help, you want to operate but there's no resources, there's no nurses, there's no beds. That's a moral fatigue or moral injury or moral distress that comes. And that's all confusing to know, am I feeling stress? Am I feeling compassion fatigue? Or am I feeling that moral distress coming from the fact it's defined by uh, the inability to do something because of resource limitations? You know, that's a moral distress. Feeling a bit hamstrung. That's right. You're hamstrung. And, and, you know, most nurses, most clinicians know how it feels to not be able to offer a treatment because of a lack of resources or beds. Um, and then finally, there's the burnout, which is basically that probably a, a accumulation of all of the above mm. that has been going on over and over and over and over again for the last three years. And that's different. That's all occupational related. That's all different to the true mental illness, which is a diagnosis. Uh, it's a specific diagnosis based on DSM-5 and, you know, ICD-10 and all that stuff. So, so we often use the term interchangeably, but I think we sometimes have to step back and say, you know, not all moral anguish can be treated with an antidepressant. And not near, and depression cannot be treated with just yoga. You know, there is, there has to be an understanding of what are you experiencing, what are, what's going through, and the treatment or the solution has to be targeted. So you know, all the e modules on on uh, on, on on burnout uh, may not treat what is an underlying anxiety disorder or depressive disorder or uh, or schizoaffective disorder. That's different, you know, but at the same time as well, all, you know, they, they, all, they all contribute, they all overlap, they all, um, uh, you know, are associations, but not necessarily causations. And do you think within the workplace, um, between health professionals, there, are, there is support available for those with, who are suffering burnout or anything like that? Or are there any yep. solutions that the um, hospitals yep. have put in place to help with that? Yeah, I think some hospitals or some institutions or some colleges uh, do better than others. Uh, you know, there's no standard thing. Um, I often tell my registrars, my residents, my, uh, my team or my, my, uh, my tribe, if I could use that term, um, there's always the formal methods and the informal methods. And when you look around your hospitals, your medical schools, your training board, there will always be some formal methods, uh, formal approaches available. You know, the College of Surgeons uh, Trainees Association, the hospital uh, employee assistance programs, the, um, uh, what do you call that? The uh, Beyond Blue Helpline uh, and the Victorian Doctors or the Queensland Doctors Health Program. There's always formal uh, reactive support. What I mean by that is you've experienced something, you react to it, you need to call someone, there's a help available. 
but I also need to tell people that really we have to think about the informal and the preventative ones, you know, uh, and what does that mean? That means building a good team, networking with the right tribe, being around good people. There's also things like hand-in-hand peer support. There's also doctors-to-doctors peer support. All these little communities around people, um, around medical students, residents, and registrars are all available. And to me, they are informal but powerful. It's very hard to measure them, but they are powerful. Um, And they are also preventative uh, in the sense, rather than waiting for five crises and you break down and you call an anonymous person online, what about if you debrief with every crisis with someone you trust. Uh, and, and that might be a more of a preventative thing. Now, let me just be very clear. I'm an ENT surgeon, so I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a counselor. But going through all the training, you know, I've done the training for mental health first aid. I've done the training for peer support. It all comes down to, look, we are humans in a stressful system, in a stressful job. Um, so we need to find our unique ways of preventative informal support before we get to the reactive formal help, if I could put it that way. And what does that mean for you guys as, as medical students? You know, finding your, your tribe. If, if you have a group of, and this is what you're doing, is great. A group of interested medical students interested in surgery, that forms your support network, you know, uh, because you know the stress of applying for residency, internship, applying for jobs. You know all of that. And you go through it together, uh, you know, as a, as a peloton. Uh, and that would, put you in a much better emotional, psychological standing than if you were traveling alone. One of the biggest challenges is that we've also physically lost um, all of that social structure thanks to the pandemic, but also thanks to the fact that the hospitals now don't have residence quarters or doctor's quarters in the, in the goal to be all inclusive. We've actually almost deleted all of those physical spaces where doctors can get together, where you know, uh, um, uh, medical students can get together where residents can get together. So we're even trying to revive some of those things in some hospitals to say, can we set up a residence quarters, a doctor's quarters, just for people to have a physical place to connect? Um, you know, it's been difficult during the pandemic. And I think that's also what's made it really hard. We've all been living behind our screens individually at home. So hopefully as we emerge out of this pandemic over the next few years, um, we would pay attention to some of that physical connection. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Scalpel. See you next time, either on our next episode or at one of Sergio's upcoming events.